Um, unfortunately, you know, my mother's response was kind of like, well, you know, I can take care of her better than you guys can. You guys thought she had cancer. Mm. And, and so she kind of rejected all medical help. So yeah, I, I grew up, um, unfortunately in a lot of pain and, um, without a lot of help, whether it be physical or emotional, um, to kind of get through all of the, all of the highs and lows of the disease. Yeah. Which is a bummer. Yeah. That's one way to put it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's a nice way to put it. (laughs) Hey there, and welcome to In Sickness and In Health, a podcast about chronic illness, disability, medical traumas, and everyday uncomfortable healthcare experiences. My name is Kara Gale. I'm not a doctor or a medical professional. I'm just a person and a patient who really wants to talk about this stuff more. If you're new to the show, welcome. Nothing said on this show should be considered medical advice. If you're experiencing a medical issue, please seek qualified medical help. I know the system sucks, but I do wish you a lot of luck. Every person is different, even within disease groups, so none of my guests should be regarded as official representatives or spokespersons for their conditions. Please respect their very personal choices, and unless they ask for it, please don't make suggestions about treatments for lifestyle changes, as it will come up again and again on this show. Unsolicited medical advice is almost never not annoying. This week's episode is part one of my two-part conversation with Kirsten Schultz, the blogger behind the Not Standing Stills Disease blog, where she shares her insights, experiences, and resources on her rare condition in autoimmune arthritis, trauma, and post-traumatic stress disorder, and, as you'll hear in part two, sex education, especially for the chronically ill. While I had heard of Stills' disease before, I'd often heard it described simply as something like rheumatoid arthritis, with little other explanation. So I asked Kirsten to explain a little bit more about how the two conditions differ and what Stills' disease actually is. They're both rheumatic diseases, right? Mm-hmm. So they're so they're basically cousins. Okay. Really, the biggest difference is that Stills' disease focuses much more on the systemic like parts of your body so there's much more um of an emphasis from the disease of attacking your lungs of attacking your heart of um very particularly attacking like your your spleen and your pancreas Mm -hmm. um and then there's also kind of the two telltale signs of Stills disease um are a salmon pink kind of effervescent fever or effervescent rash that kind of comes and goes um and and it tends to center around the joints that might be flaring um and and, you know so that's that's the disease attacking your skin is this rash Mm -hmm. and then you get um kind of low to high grade fevers depending on what stage of the disease you're in um and and how well you're doing but those can peak you know from once up to even three times a day. Um, and the fevers usually bring the rash along with it. So there's usually, um, you know, a couple heightened disease periods throughout the day that tend to be either right in the morning or um, late afternoon through the evening. So it's it's interesting because it's related, you know, 
to uh-huh. rheumatoid arthritis. It's related to lupus. And so a lot of people will explain it as, well, it's like lupus, like, like rheumatoid arthritis and lupus, which isn't exactly true. Right. But, you know, sometimes it helps people understand a little bit better right? because um, they can relate to it. It's, it's also interesting because um, so Stills disease, there's, there's really two types of Stills disease. There's adult onset, and that was really only discovered back um, in the 1970s. Mm-hmm. And then there's um, juvenile onset, which is more commonly known as um, systemic juvenile arthritis. So, so there's kind of two sides to that coin. And then there's um, been some research lately about whether or not like systemic juvenile arthritis should be included with the other two main types of juvenile idiopathic arthritis Mm -hmm. as it currently is because systemic is much more auto-inflammatory in nature versus autoimmune. So it's it's just an interesting kind of mishmash of things. (laughs) Yeah. Now people with Stills disease, do they often get misdiagnosed either with rheumatoid arthritis or with lupus or both or? Yeah, it's, um, it's hard because it is a, a disease where your diagnosis really comes based on excluding other diagnoses. So, and and because it's rare, um, you know, I don't, I don't have stats on adult onset, but particularly in juvenile onset, it only makes up about 10% of the kids with juvenile idiopathic arthritis, you know, with, with better research, with better, um, access to, materials, these things are being diagnosed more accurately now, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, some people would would interpret as, well, it's more common now, particularly with the juvenile onset type. Um, like, we couldn't figure out what was wrong with me when I was little. At first, they thought it was, like, a, a food allergy or, um, like, a chemical allergy, and then we went through a host of misdiagnoses up until we got to leukemia. And they were like, okay. Oh, that's fun. Yeah. You have six weeks to live. Oh it's just God. before your sixth birthday. Have fun with that. Wow. So, you know, I was lucky enough that we were able to find out what it was in that time period. But, ugh. Yeah. <laughs> it, yeah. It's, it's often... Um, it often tends to go if people don't know about rheumatic diseases, as far as like physicians and healthcare providers, it can tend to go to the oncology route. And so you get kids going to see like a pediatric oncologist and they're like, I don't know why you're here. (laughs) You don't have leukemia. That must've been so scary. Yeah, it was interesting. Um, I think I think, though, for me, and I, I'm sure that you can agree a little bit with this, I feel a little more blessed to have been sick most of my life. Yeah. Because, like, I didn't have to adjust, right? Yeah. Like, I wasn't a triathlete that, like, <laughs> woke up and couldn't move. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was never quite sick enough as a kid to be taken seriously as a sick person. So I kind of didn't totally understand that I was sick and that sort of thing. So my, my route is a little weird. Um, but I completely understand what you're saying about that of, of like, not having to go from being a fully functional, you know, human being who's doing all this stuff to all of a sudden not being able to move. Yeah, it's, I'm extremely grateful for that. Yeah. Yeah, it helps to, you know, be able to 
well, it helps and also maybe screws you for life. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, there's that too. <laughs> yeah, having to develop coping mechanisms that young. Something that Kirsten and I have talked about that didn't get recorded is our experiences with Planned Parenthood. We've both been patients there, and Kirsten volunteered with them as well. So when the events of last week happened, we both had quite a lot of feelings to process. When I started this project, I didn't want the podcast to get political because arguing about politics with people who have already made up their minds on a highly contested issue is something I just don't like to waste my spoons on. But like I said in last week's episode, how can I do a show about health without talking about the systems that are failing the patients that I talk to? How can I do a show about health and not talk about the issues affecting access to basic healthcare services? How can I do a show about health and not talk about an event that is a direct result of the slow and steady march to destroy women's access to basic health care and bodily autonomy? This isn't about being pro-choice or pro-life. This is about access to basic health care. I fully respect the views of those who believe that abortion is immoral. It's a very important part of my pro-choice stance that women are able to decide for themselves whether or not abortion is the right choice for their bodies. We don't have to agree on this. But what I don't respect is when people try to interfere with or restrict access to healthcare services of any kind. I do believe it is wholly unethical and immoral for anyone other than a woman, her partner, and her doctor to decide what is the right course of action in a given situation. These situations are never easy. Others disagree, and that's okay, but reinforcing stigma with inflammatory rhetoric about this stuff is irresponsible and immoral. Last Friday, a gunman entered a Planned Parenthood facility in Colorado Springs, Colorado, and had a standoff with law enforcement that lasted more than five hours. After he was taken into custody, it was revealed that three people had been killed and nine wounded in the exchange of gunfire. The dead included a mother of two, an Iraq War veteran, and a police officer. My thoughts are with the loved ones of those killed and injured, those who no longer feel safe accessing what are supposed to be safe and legal healthcare services, and the staff and volunteers of reproductive health clinics nationwide. This attack left me at a loss for words. My anger and sadness has made it hard for me to even form a coherent sentence about it, but I'm trying because neither healthcare providers nor patients should have to fear for their lives in accessing vital healthcare resources. Whether it's for the 3% of Planned Parenthood services that include abortion, or the 97% of their services that include pap tests, breast cancer screenings, contraception, or testing for sexually transmitted infections from syphilis to HIV, reproductive health clinics should be no place for domestic terrorism. And yet so often they are the targets for threats and violence. The U.S. has a long history of clinic violence. The last death resulting from such attacks occurred in 2009 with the murder of Dr. George Tiller, who was shot in the head while serving as an usher during the Sunday morning service at his church. Threats of violence against doctors and reproductive health clinics have escalated sharply in recent months, increasing exponentially since July, when a series of since-debunked videos allegedly showed Planned Parenthood employees arranging to sell fetal tissue from abortions on the black market. 
As I mentioned, only 3% of the services that Planned Parenthood provides include abortion. Women who receive these services are given the option to make voluntary donation of the resulting tissue that would otherwise be discarded to medical research that has benefited millions of people. By law, clinics cannot profit off of these donations and collect fees only for processing and transporting the tissue. All of the investigations into these allegedly illegal practices and there have been a bunch of them that have been launched since the videos were released, have turned up no evidence of wrongdoing on behalf of Planned Parenthood. And due to the controversy, Planned Parenthood has stopped collecting the legal transportation fees for such tissue altogether. Back in September, the New England Journal of Medicine, widely considered among the most respected of medical publications, published an op-ed in response to the videos, which were already starting to be debunked. It read, quote, We strongly support Planned Parenthood not only for its efforts to channel fetal tissue into important medical research, but also for its work as one of the country's largest providers of health care for women, especially poor women. In 2013, the most recent year for which data are available, Planned Parenthood provided services to 2.7 million women, men, and young people during 4.6 million health care visits. At least 60% of these patients benefited from public health coverage programs such as the nation's family planning program and Medicaid. At least 78% of these patients lived with incomes at or below 150% of the federal poverty level. Planned Parenthood services included nearly 400,000 pap tests, nearly 500,000 breast examinations, nearly 4.5 million tests for sexually transmitted illnesses including HIV, and treatments. The contraception services that Planned Parenthood delivers may be the single greatest effort to prevent the unwanted pregnancies that result in abortions. I'll read that again. The contraception services that Planned Parenthood delivers may be the single greatest effort to prevent the unwanted pregnancies that result in abortions. It is shameful that a radical anti-choice group, whose goal is the destruction of Planned Parenthood, continues to twist the facts to achieve its ends. We thank the women who made the choice to help improve the human condition through their tissue donation. We applaud the people who make this work possible and those who use these materials to advance human health. We are outraged by those who debase these women, this work, and Planned Parenthood by distorting the facts for political ends." End quote. These videos were dubiously championed for political gains by many on the right, who used them to make erroneous points in the Republican debates and even used them as justification to pass a measure to defund Planned Parenthood in the House of Representatives, which thankfully failed in the Senate. This, even though Planned Parenthood is already barred from using any federal money for anything related to abortion services. Multiple independent analyses of the videos have since revealed that they were heavily edited with highly manipulative shooting and editing techniques, which is shockingly easy even if you don't know much about video editing. If you do, as I did, you can tell that the videos are bogus within seconds of viewing, and it only gets more obvious from there. Other analyses of the more grotesque elements of the videos shows that some of the footage of what was claimed to be an aborted, quote, fully formed fetus was actually a premature delivery. 
this footage was used without consent of the family, which not only violates the privacy protections of HIPAA, but is a gross violation of any ethical standard. The discrediting and debunking of the videos was poorly covered, if at all, by many media outlets. Instead, the mainstream media, in tandem with politicians, have only continued to fuel the flames of polarity and extremism, which seems to at least contributed to this act of domestic terrorism. The chairwoman of Physicians for Reproductive Health, an advocacy group working to improve access to comprehensive reproductive health care, had this to say in response to the attack. Quote, this campaign of terror, waged over decades against those of us who provide this critical care, is reprehensible and must end. The poisonous environment that incubates this terrorism and passivity of elected officials who tolerate it must end as well. This morning, our hearts are heavy, but our resolve is strong. And this morning, just as we did yesterday morning, Doctors, nurses, and clinic staff went to work at reproductive clinics across our country. We are there because our conscience compels us to be there. We are there because we see our patients need and we must respond. We are there because no act of violence is stronger than an act of compassion. And that is what we do for our patients. We serve them, not only with excellent medical care, but with the compassion that they deserve, end quote. I want to personally thank the staff and volunteers of Planned Parenthood and other reproductive health clinics who risk their lives on a daily basis to keep their patients safe and their clinic doors open. Planned Parenthood has continued to fight for the millions of people to whom they serve safe, legal, and necessary health care. I have been among those millions on more than one occasion. Planned Parenthood was there for me when I needed them, providing safe and affordable access to healthcare I urgently needed at the time. I have always supported Planned Parenthood, but they need our support and our voices now more than ever, which is why I continue to stand with Planned Parenthood. Kirsten does as well, and she sent me this statement, quote, in eighth grade, I watched a wonderful presentation from a local sex educator with Planned Parenthood and so enjoyed how she made a rough topic something funny and entertaining. As I grew and took an interest in sexuality in our society at large, I began to volunteer with Planned Parenthood in high school. After all, I was utilizing their services for protection against pregnancy and sexually transmitted diseases and writing an extended essay comparing the sexual education systems of the United States and various European countries. I fell in love with the wonderful sex-positive views therein and the amazing people I had the chance to collaborate with. Once I was in college, I had moved and worked so much that I wasn't able to volunteer but still utilized their services to be safe. Being such a supporter and lover of Planned Parenthood for nearly all of my life, the shooting at the Colorado Springs facility struck me to my core. I remember as a child hearing about the bombings at clinics and how frightening that was. I remember being struck by how horrible that must be, to disagree with someone's views and actions so much that you'd rather kill them than end the dialogue and walk away. Despite the more recent political and financial attacks on Planned Parenthood, I thought we were past this violence. I thought that, as a society, we were grown up enough to use our words. 
they should have known better given the long history here in the United States of fighting this organization and its values. The misconceptions out there about Planned Parenthood have played into the shooter's motives from his own statements thus far. The mean-spirited and unresearched words spouted from the mouths of the few have driven a man to take lives into his own hands and end them. On social media, we see others holding him up as a hero instead of mourning lives lost and forever changed across the country by this act of domestic terrorism. I am so saddened by this loss, by the fear it instills in us. I'm frightened to see how easy it is for people to harm others with no thought to the gravity of lives lost and harmed. I'm puzzled by the juxtaposition of being pro-life but not caring for lives lost. I'm angered by others supporting and celebrating this violence with no thoughts for the families who have lost their loved ones. No worry for the children growing up without a mother or father. There's so much I could say, so much to convey, that it can't quite all fit together. Compassion is what we need, now more than ever, no matter which side of the abortion debate you land on. End quote. Today is Giving Tuesday, a day where people are encouraged to make charitable contributions to the organizations of their choice. The Planned Parenthood Action Fund and Planned Parenthood of the Rocky Mountains are a really great place to start. I'll include a blog link in the show notes that contain both my and Kirsten's official statements on Planned Parenthood, sources for the information I've discussed, as well as a list of a number of other organizations worth donating to. If, for some weird reason, you'd like to make a non-tax-deductible monetary contribution to something, you can always donate to In Sickness and In Health. There's a support page on InSicknessPod.com where you can donate on a one-time or recurring basis via PayPal. Or you can become a patron of our Patreon to donate on a per-episode basis. This project is a labor of love for me, but I would like to at least cover some of my startup and production costs. I know having a chronic illness, or five, is super expensive and most of us don't have the money to waste on an otherwise free podcast. I totally get it. But if you'd like to help out the show in non-monetary ways, you can rate and review us on iTunes, tell everyone you know about us, and share us on social media. The more that people find us, the better. But if you happen to be an eccentric millionaire with money to burn, this eccentric non-millionaire will happily take it. You can find us at InSicknessPod.com and on social media at InSicknessPod. And tune in to part two in a few weeks where we'll be talking about sex and Kirsten's advocacy work. You started showing symptoms when you were five years old? Yeah, so it was actually... um... November 14th of 1993 um, that I started showing symptoms and I was just really exhausted. I had this rash and couldn't figure out what it was. And then I, I honestly missed enough of kindergarten that I probably shouldn't have been bumped up to first grade. Um, but I think they took pity on me. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, more, most specifically because I had this rash of unknown origin and so everybody's like, mm, no, you can't come to school today. Like, right. Um, and so, like, that was hard because I went from being very, very social 
to being pretty isolated. Um, I mean, I had my sister. She was much younger than me, though. And and so that was a little tricky at first. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, just kind of going through the diagnosis process was ridiculous. I mean, you know, the, from them thinking that it was like a food allergy, peanut butter is like one of my favorite things in the entire world. And they're like, yeah. no, you can't have peanut butter. And I was like, excuse me. No. <laughs> Once I developed a peanut allergy, I continued to eat peanut butter for another couple of years and just like tried to take Benadryl with it. And like, mm-hmm. maybe if I just, you know, take some preemptive Benadryl, I'll be fine. And I got to a point where I was like, oh, I'm going to go to the hospital if I keep doing this. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> I feel you on that. Um, you know, and then, and then going through kind of the chemical allergy route and, you know, having to change all our soaps and all of that fun stuff. Yeah. Um, I did that I, a few years ago to yeah. no avail. Because <laughs> oh, it's, it's, it's such a disruptive lifestyle change that you have to like, you know, and you have to do it for several months to see if that's the thing or not. Um, and it, it took me like over a year to realize like, oh, I guess I can just use regular soap. That's cool. <laughs> <laughs> and then it sucks because you usually like, if you're going through those changes, you try to buy, like, the super fancy stuff. Like, you go yeah. to Whole Foods. Oh, it's so like, oh. expensive. Yeah. <laughs> and then, like, you know, if you're talking, like, a year down the road, you've spent how much of oh. the money you don't really have Yeah. on fancy soap. <laughs> well, the good thing was that I did discover that I don't have to wash my hair anywhere near as, not- as often as I had been previously. So I just, like, don't. That's good. Yeah. I fully support you in that. Yeah, and that that saves a lot of money on uh, shampoo and conditioner mostly because I have curly mm-hmm. hair, so the conditioner is really the big expense. And uh, it also saves a lot of spoons because I don't have to hold my arms up while I'm in the shower. Oh, yeah, and all, all that finger work, right, especially yeah. with the curly hair. I, yeah. I have really curly hair, except now when it's short, it's kind of just... Einstein hair but (laughs) so yeah that was part of the reason that I cut my hair actually was I felt like I was spending so many spoons on Mm -hmm. making sure I showered enough so I could wash my hair so I didn't have to put it up every day and like you know getting tired of going to my husband and being like can you wash my hair yeah Yeah, I tried to, yesterday on Thanksgiving, I tried to do something with my hair other than just put it up like I do every day, because I was like, oh, I'm feeling pretty good today. I might actually, like, do something with my hair. And then I tried, and then there was a big pile of hair on the bathroom floor, and I used all of my spoons and more or less, like, had to sleep through Thanksgiving. (laughs) Oh, no. Yeah, that's that's not the first time that's happened. Uh, I hate that. Yeah. At least, like, Thanksgiving is, like, everybody eats and then they all kind of get nappy. Yeah. Okay. So how how vividly do you remember that diagnostic process? Because obviously, you know, you're five, you're six years old. That's, you know, your brain is, is still very much developing. I, I'm sure that was extremely traumatic for you. Like, how much of that actually got saved in your brain? You know, a, a fair amount of it. Um I am both really lucky and slightly cursed, apparently, by having a really good memory, Uh Um, except when I'm brain fogging. So there's that. But um, 
you know, so like I can remember the first time I ate cereal out of a cup. Like, oh, wow. whoa, you know, I was probably like two. So <laughs> it, it was a red letter day, I'll tell you that. Um, but, uh, you know, so I remember, I remember the fatigue a lot uh, out of just my own feeling, um, just being so tired and then trying to sleep and not being able to sleep because this rash, um, for a good percent of people that have Stills disease can be very itchy. Mm -hmm. And so for me, especially during the onset, it was, so I wasn't sleeping because I was spending all night scratching myself, like Mm -hmm. half asleep, um, and so, like, I, I remember that. I remember just going to doctor after doctor and, like, well, this didn't work, that didn't work. Um, and then I remember very vividly there was – I had to go get my blood drawn, like, every couple days for a while before we knew what was going on. And um, we went to this clinic, and they went to take my blood, and the gal wasn't using a butterfly needle – like everybody else had been because, I mean, I was very teeny because I once, you know, on one hand, I was like five and six. On the other hand, I was five and six and not being able to eat. Mm. It's so very skinny. And, you know, she just really didn't have like any bedside manner. And so she's like, oh, this won't hurt a bit. And she stabs in. She doesn't, doesn't get the vein. And I just screamed bloody murder to the point where like, it seemed like everybody that was in that clinic ran into the room to, like, see if I was okay. My mom's sitting there holding me. They're like, we still have to get your blood. And I was like, no. <laughs> like, like, that is the that is the most vivid memory of the diagnostic process I have. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of it was more kind of the ramifications of things. So, um, like I was saying, how they thought I had leukemia right before my sixth birthday. Well, then I had my birthday party, and, like, everybody showed up, which was awesome. But then all the parents were sad. And so then I was just like, this is awful. (laughs) And then I got the chicken pox because somebody brought their kids Uh. to school with the chicken pox. And I was just like, "Mm." So I already had this itchy rash. And then I've got chicken pox. And then everybody thought, oh, my God, maybe it's something else that's, like, adding on to this disease. And... Uh, but you know, it's. I, I remember enough of the diagnostic process to to remember just how exhausting it was for mm-hmm. everybody involved. Um, you know, my mom being a single mother and trying to take me to these appointments, and you know, also having a a two and three year old. You know, my sister was two, I think, when I started getting sick, and then turned three. So. Um, you know, trying to drag both of us and taking care of both of us, like, it's, I'm exhausted thinking about it. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> me too. That ready does for sound, a nap. <laughs> like, a lot. Um, so, like, you get your diagnosis. What was that like? Was there a sense of, re- I mean, I'm sure there was a sense of relief that you didn't have cancer. That's usually, like, yay. Um, but, you know, what, what kind of feelings did you have? Once you finally found out what was wrong? Um, you know, I, I guess I kind of didn't really grasp it. And I really didn't yeah. grasp until I was in college and started blogging. Um, bec- partially because, so, so the reaction to 
my diagnosis was, okay, we need to put you on methotrexate. Oh, good. And Which, for people who don't know, is a drug that is used to treat many autoimmune conditions, but was first developed as chemotherapy for cancer. Yes, and, and, and the chemotherapy part scared my mother to death. Yeah. Especially after just having gone through this, well, she needs intense chemotherapy and radiation or she's going to die. Um, and she went, mm, no thanks. And... <laughs> Basically, I was on um, liquid naproxen, so so basically like liquid Aleve, mm-hmm. um, for a little while. But that was just upsetting my stomach so much that we actually transitioned to me literally taking Aleve, <laughs> and I did that until I was twenty-one. Um. And so basically that whole time, the Stills disease is still kind of like wreaking havoc on your body, right? Yeah. Yeah. So you said you started blogging when you were about 20? Yeah. So um, I met my husband my sophomore year of college, which was his senior year. Um, So in 2007, and he was writing this great blog about um, like baseball analytics. Like he's super smart. (laughs) You know, so I was like, oh, he blogs. That's so fancy. I'm going to blog. And so I started my first blog and really used it as a way to communicate with him about my disease. But it also helped me learn about my disease, right? So, you know, growing up, I had bits and pieces of medical knowledge. Um, I was homeschooled for some part of that time. And unfortunately, you know, homeschooling is supposed to be a parent teaching you and that didn't happen. So Mm. I ended up teaching myself a lot, um, which served as a great resource as I got into college and now in grad school. (laughs) Yay, knowledge learning things. (laughs) But, um, you know, so, so I'm learning more and more and more about the disease and I'm, I'm writing this blog because some of it is so difficult to just tell him. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, how do you sit down with somebody that you're newly in love with, you're like 95% sure you're going to marry and spend the rest of your life with, and you go, "Mm, you know, so there might just be this thing someday where I like have to go to the hospital because my brain gets swollen and I don't come home. (laughs) Or, um, you know, well, if my stomach's hurting really bad, we probably need to do something because like, my pancreas could be swollen and I could like go into a coma. Like those are really tough topics to discuss if you're already in a very seasoned relationship. Yeah. But to be like, Hey, so (laughs) here's kind of a little bit about my family. Also, by the way, I might die. Like, (laughs) (laughs) and you you might be responsible for saving my life or getting me to people who can. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I, it it was a very easy way for me to take the emotion out of telling him Mm -hmm. um, while also informing some of my professors who were very interested in in kind of my learning process about my own body, um, despite the fact that I was a religious studies major. (laughs) And, um, you know, it was just a healthy outlet for me to 
also develop, you know, some opinions like you do when you're in college about religion and <laughs> politics and all that good stuff. Um, and then in 2009, you know, over those two years, I had met a lot of people who shared my illness. For the very first time, I met other people and I was like, oh, so I'm not alone. This is great. <laughs> and, you know, started getting connections um, in the online kind of spoony community. And so so in 2009, my husband goes, you know, maybe you should just start a blog that's just your illness stuff. And like, here's a great name for it. And let's start it right now. <laughs> the name being not Standing Still's Disease. Yes. He's very good at puns. Nice. Um, he, it's good to have somebody like that around. Yeah. Um, he'll be good at dad jokes sometime. Yeah. When we get there. If we get there. But... <laughs> In the meantime, our guinea pigs are enjoying his dad jokes, so it works. Um, you know, so so started that and, and got it rolling, and it's really been a very interesting process to go from just literally a sophomore, which is ironic in and of itself because the word sophomore kind of has this connotation due to its, like, Latin meaning or whatever about you think you know a lot more than you do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so to go from that standpoint to like actually knowing things and helping people, um, you know, it's it's been really nice to be able, especially to help um, younger adults or, or families with teens who are dealing with that transition to adulthood and how do they take care of themselves and how do they handle relationships and school and, um, just being able to kind of be a resource for people that I wish I had had. Right. It's It's been super rewarding. Yeah. And given that Stills disease is a, a rare condition, uh, how many resources existed when you first started doing this? Um, not many. I mean, there, um, there was one of my late friends um, who actually passed away due to complications of an mm-hmm. infection um, and not having an immune system that really functioned because of the Stills disease, um, ran this great website called Stills Life. Mm-hmm. And, um, like, still today, people will pull up her stuff in doctor's offices, whether it's the doctor pulling it up to show the patient or the patient pulling it up to show the doctor, um, about great things she wrote about the different medications, about different coping issues, um, and, and so she was really the first person that I met. She was really the main resource. Um, there are a couple other people out there, um, like Emily Bradley, who writes for Chronic Curve. Um, she's finishing up her college degree right now, so she's taken a little bit of a break, understandably. <laughs> um, but she's she's going to go to PA school, which will be great to have yeah. somebody, you know, who knows both sides of it? Oh, right? absolutely. Yeah, we need so... I mean, what sucks is that the, the training that's required to become a clinical medical practitioner is really grueling and difficult, um, which is really like a, a barrier to entry for a lot of people with chronic conditions. But it's so great that there are people who are at least making the attempt, you know, to try and, and do that and become doctors or PAs or nurse 
practitioners themselves. It's, it's, we need so many more of them. We really do. And honestly, like, like you were saying that, that rigorous training process is so intense. Like, mm-hmm. honestly, even for quote unquote normal people. Oh, yeah. It's way too much. Well, one of my friends that's in medical school put it like it's a competition to see who can stand up, not sleep, not eat, not go to the bathroom for as long as possible. Like the the people who manage to do that are the ones who succeed, you know, and not necessarily the people who have, you know, really good bedside manner or things like that. It's the people who just are able to torture themselves for long periods of time. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I w- I would have loved to be a doctor, but me too. Oh no way. <laughs> yeah, no. Not in a million years. A, I hate school. B, I would rather die than take organic chemistry. Oh yeah. <laughs> and C, my body would murder me. So it's just you know not an option. Yeah, there's you know several factors that tell you mm, <laughs> no thanks. <laughs> yeah, but you are actually pursuing a master's degree in health administration, right? I am, yeah. So I'm I'm going to school um, with Utica College in New York right now. They have a great online program, um, and and I'm working towards a master's in healthcare administration with a focus on patient advocacy and navigation. Um, so basically, what that means is that at the end of my degree, I could do a bajillion things, obviously, but um, you know, hopefully, I'll be in a place where I can either work for an organization or maybe start an organization that really focuses on um, helping younger adults with chronic illnesses. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, what I would really like to see is, um, you know, something where you have one contact person that kind of helps you go through everything so that if you're, say you're on, um, you know, social security, disability stuff, and, and you already have to deal with, multiple people if there are any issues with that you already have to deal with multiple people if you're you know receiving any other sort of social assistance but if you had one person that was really your case manager for all of that Mm -hmm. and could really guide you through all of that whether it's taking you to your appointments and sitting there with you and listening so that you know you have someone that's catching things you're not catching (laughs) yeah that would be helpful we all need (laughs) um or, you know, someone to sit through and, and look at medication options with you, not to pick one for you, but so you're educated. Um, you know, I, I think that something like that would be really, really helpful, especially in um, very large cities mm-hmm. where you get a lot of bureaucracy in certain things. Or, you know, on the flip side, in very rural areas where you just don't have access to people. Yeah. It, I mean, it's it's incredible. You know, in rural areas, there are people just don't get health care <laughs> because for there aren't doctors for miles or there aren't doctors that take Medicaid for miles, you know. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have the resources to be able to get to them, you know, that then healthcare is just something that you don't get access to, which is such a shame. And the, the flip side is true also in urban areas where the population density is very high, um, you know, especially in low income communities, there just are not enough practitioners to meet the needs of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. Yeah. 
There's um, like every imaginable healthcare nightmare is playing out in some way <laughs> in some like in different corners of, of the country. Very accurate. <laughs> yeah. I wish it wasn't, but Yeah, me too. You know, it's it's interesting though. There's um kind of the idea that I have is is already being played out in a couple of communities. Um on a general level, it's it's called the Pathways Community Hub. And and kind of what it does is exactly what we were just talking about. So you have one point person mm-hmm. that might help everybody in the household. Um with with various things so the nice thing about it is there's already a precedent right right there's already a community that that has spread this idea to various other communities around the country um so hopefully we can get one that's more focused on chronic illness stuff Um, yeah well that would be great i mean one in two american adults lives with a chronic health condition so you know if we paid a little bit more attention to that that might be helpful yeah, you know, it, it wouldn't be bad, especially, you know, we have so many different healthcare practitioners to balance. Yeah. Um, you know, I was just thinking the other day about how many people I have on my, mm-hmm. I, I call it my A team, you know, my <laughs> healthcare team. And, you know, from my physical therapist to my rheumatologist to my general practitioner, who's also an OBGYN. Thank Ooh. You. <laughs> yeah, I love her. I story. want one of those. If you're ever in Wisconsin, let me know. <laughs> um, and, you know, to dietitian, to nutritionist, like, I have so many people on my healthcare team that it's amazing to think about mm-hmm. if I'm not seeing them, you know. Yeah. Holy crap, I have 10 people that, like... I kind of have to check in with every so often and that are kind of paying attention to me so that I like am doing what I need to do for myself. Um, It's kind of awesome. Especially if you think about, you know, so many of us don't have like a good support system at home, whether it's literally at home or just our family or our friends. And so for me to have really great, you know, healthcare practitioners that I can lean on in the area um for any number of things so nice and i i definitely feel privileged in that regard and i wish everybody you know could have access to my awesome team (laughs) yeah that that certainly would be nice do you ever feel like you have too many doctors um sometimes like i but it's also interesting because there are some like practitioners that I wish were on my team that I don't have. So like, um, I see an allergist right now. It's, it's, it's transitioned to once a year. Um, but you know, I have some mild intermittent asthma and some mild allergies. So, you know, we did testing for that. Um, but she's also in the immunology department. And like, for me, that would be really great, Mm -hmm. especially considering how rare Stills disease is. To be able to, like, sit down with an immunologist and go, okay, so am I positive for these markers that might also indicate, you know, um, possible susceptibilities to other illnesses or, um, you know, possible clues to other things that are going on with my body. Mm-hmm. And I don't have an immunologist on my team. And, like, 
right now I'm doing pretty well, so I don't think I can really make the case for, hey, I need a referral to an immunologist. Right. Um, you know, so there, so there are some things like that where I wish I had access to certain practitioners. But, um, yeah, I'm really lucky to live right next to a really great medical school that I work for and um, to be able to have access to a lot of different practitioners, um, you know, if I need it. But yeah, it it does get kind of tricky, right? Like, especially if you have a period where you're seeing a whole bunch of them. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, you know, I work full time. And so sometimes my supervisor or my coworker are not so happy about the fact that I've been gone a lot. (laughs) Even though it's like FMLA, it's okay. But um, so much of how other people interact with and treat us is based mm-hmm. on how we treat ourselves because yes. it sets a precedent for everybody else. Yep. And so if we're treating ourselves like, oh, look at fatty sitting <laughs> on the couch all day. Again. Look like, at this jerk over here. <laughs> exactly. Like, well, other people are probably not going to treat you the nicest. But if, if you're treating yourself with the respect that you deserve, I think other people pick up on that. Yeah, and and, and that's not to say that, like, that's going to make people give you the respect and such that you deserve. You know, some people are Mm -hmm. just jerks. They're jerks. and So many jerks. And, you know, a a really important thing, um, and I I blogged about this yesterday, that, like, you know, the holidays aren't necessarily a happy time for everyone. It's actually a really hard time for a lot of people because some people – just come from families that are a bunch of jerks and it's important to learn to recognize that and to realize that you know you deserve better than to be treated like garbage and you have to start by treating yourself well and learning to utilize your spoons in a productive way which in some situations means just not wasting them on people that are never going to even try to understand what you go through yeah it's so true though oh my gosh mm-hmm. and, you, know. and you only learn that the hard way like, you, you do. only learn that the hard way you really do and it's it's hard because you want to help other people see it Mm-hmm. but it's not, you know, like you're saying, people learn it the hard way, so it's not always a, an easy thing to convey. But it's always something that we can keep in the back of our minds during this season, like, oh, well, maybe Susie doesn't want to come to the party because, you know, she's not into parties because normally she goes to parties at her family's house and everybody's not kind to her. Or, right. you know, there's there's so many different things we can keep in mind with respect to being compassionate to other people that I think translate again into being compassionate for ourselves. And it's, mm-hmm. it's so important to yeah. living like, Oh my God, I, you know, I've just lived 20, well, we'll say 25 years of, you know, not really liking myself very much. And to start in the last two years, learning more about myself and, getting toxic people out of my life and only surrounding myself with people who really treat me the way I should be treated has been such a mind changer. Yeah. Like it's changed my mindset. Like it started with a mindset change, right? Mm -hmm. Like I had to go, I am worth more than this. And then it turned into everybody else going, yeah, 
You are <laughs> worth more than this. You go, Glen Coco. Was and- it? Um, I, I'm I'm curious if to some extent that initial I'm worth more than this was a little bit of a put on. Like you didn't fully believe it quite yet, but you were like, I'm I'm putting my foot down and I'm. I'm saying this because that's certainly something that I ran into where I'm like, I'm not sure I deserve more than this, but I'm going to, I'm going to say I do and hope for the best. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I think it's, I think any of those first kinds of mindset moves and paradigm shifts are always a little bit of a bluff. Yeah. Right. It's like, well, I know I can start this company. Um, I think, you know, and so I, I think I think all of those changes come out of a certain amount of uncertainty. Yeah. Um, and and desperation too sometimes. For sure. It it takes a lot to be able to be like, you know, I, I don't think you should talk to me that way. <laughs> like I wouldn't or, talk to myself that way. Right. So. Well, I mean, the thing for me was that I did talk to myself that way and I have had to aggressively unlearn that. Yeah. Um, yes. And, like, really stay on top of myself when I am engaging in that negative self-talk and be like, although I, I sometimes I, I wind up in this death spiral of, like, beating myself up for beating myself up. But, oh yeah, I, you know, I try to say, like, hey, would you say that to somebody that you care about? And the answer is always no, of course not. And so mm-hmm. if I wouldn't say it to somebody else, I try not to say it to myself. But that doesn't always, you know, pan out. Exactly. Like, I use my sister as, as my person. Um, you know, we grew up in an abusive household. My sister got the brunt of it, I think, because I was sick. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I I always treat her way better than I would treat myself. <laughs> and, you know, in the last couple of years, like, I passively heard somebody saying, well, you know, self-love and self-care really comes down to do you treat yourself the same way you treat other people right and so it started with me when I got into negative self-talk or um you know at any sort of um downplaying of myself I would step back and I would say like would I say this to Kelsey is this is this a way that I would talk to my sister like we practically raised each other. We're best friends. Like, would I say this crap to her? Mm-hmm. Um, probably not. So let's think about <laughs> how I could say this differently or how I can think about this differently. Um, because sometimes it is you did actually make a mistake and you do actually want to be like, oh, my bad. Right. Of course. But your brain is just like, oh, you suck so much. <laughs> you are the so worst much. person who has ever lived. <laughs> Yeah, but it's, you know, I think that's a really simple first step that people can do. Absolutely. Take a step back and go, okay, would I say this to my wife? Would I treat my wife like this? Would I treat my sister like this? And if the answer to that is yes, like, maybe maybe think about about why. Yeah, maybe start thinking about, like, why you would say those kinds of things to people and where does that come from? And a lot of times it's something that doesn't come from inside of ourselves it's something that we've internalized from the way that we've been treated you know either by our families or you know sometimes our early relationships are bad and that's that kind of imprints certain abusive behaviors on us 
Um, and in that case, actually in all cases, I highly recommend therapy if you have access to it, which not everyone does, but um, it can be really helpful if you see a good therapist to kind of look at where some of this stuff comes from and, and unlearn some of the things that have been imprinted on you. Mm-hmm. There, there are also some really good resources, um, you know, that the, you know, Veterans Affairs Department has put out and, and other things about how to kind of get started on kind of unlearning some of those ideas or how to deal with um, situations if you feel triggered, if, you mm-hmm. know, if you have post-traumatic stress disorder and they they're good things for everyone to learn whether right. you have something like that or not. Um, because I think we all go through something at some point in our life that gives That's us, absolutely, you know, a, a smidgen of PTSD. For some right. people, it's going through a, a medical procedure right. or, or going or, through the diagnosis process. Right. And, and sometimes it's, it's repeated it. It's not necessarily a big traumatic event, but repeated exposures to uh, traumatic events that maybe aren't as big as, as saying, you know, getting blown up by a bomb or something like that, you know, that we normally associate with post-traumatic stress disorder can be a lot more insidious than that and happen over a longer period of time and... Um, that's something that I really want to start to do with my podcast is kind of shine a light a little bit more on, uh, medical related post-traumatic stress. Cause I think that's something that really no one talks about and no one really realizes exists and it for sure does. Um, and I don't, I'm not sure where I was going with that statement, but. I, I think we were just ruminating on the wonderful effects of PTSD. Yeah. You know. There's so much, so much that can play into it. Yeah. It's just great. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. And there is so much that can play into it. You know, you can have trauma in one area of your life that is then compounded by your experiences with the medical community and and stuff like that. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, I I will say that, um, you know, when I'm having a hard time dealing with my PTSD, sometimes it's easier for me and healthier for me to stay away from social media. Mm-hmm. Um, even though so many of the wonderful people I know on social media just want to help. Um, you know, there, there are times when the helping hurts or right. um, people will, just like with any chronic illness, mental or physical, will make a well-meaning comment right. um, about, well, you're, you're accomplishing all of this. Why are you depressed? Right. Or, you know, yeah, well, you have like that, that situation now. Yeah, okay, my brain does not know that. That is exactly what PTSD is. Like, right. My brain doesn't realize that I'm safe. Um, right. And not just yeah. your brain, but your whole body, you know. Oh, your, yeah. Especially like, as, as someone living with an autonomic nervous system condition, like you really gosh. learn exactly how physical uh, that kind of stuff can be. Oh, my gosh. That has to be... So incredibly. Uh, Well, let me put it this way. I am great in a crisis situation because I am just so used to like being, you know, in fight or flight all of the time that like if something, something crisis is going on, like give me a few seconds, make sure I'm not going to pass out. And then like, 
all right, here's a plan. Let's do it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I feel you. I, I'm good at crisis situations for other people. Yeah. Well, yeah, of course. Yes. Like, yeah. Um, crisis situations for oneself is something else entirely. Oh, yes. Um, my, my nephew was born in March and he had a critical congenital heart defect. Um, and my sister lives on the West Coast. <sighs> I live in the middle of the frozen tundra. Yeah. And, um, you know, she called me, it woke me up and she was like, oh my God, he was just like airlifted. Like she'd just given birth to him. Oh my God. You know, like 14 hours before and she's crying and like exhausted and, you know, so we waited to get more information. Then I was like, okay, I'm coming out this date. We're going to do this. He's going to have a surgery. It'll be great. Like yeah. <laughs> everything turned out fine. He's doing great. You can oh, I'm so see happy to scar. hear that. But, you know, it, it was one of those things where I was like, okay, fight or flight mode, we go into fight mode and go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, you know, even though that experience, whatever experiences we've had that have led us to having PTSD are awful and should never happen to anybody, you know, sometimes there is a use for that. Yeah. Um, and that is a situation in which I felt grateful for being so in tune with my fighting abilities <laughs> like, and, and planning during crises. Yeah. That's interesting. I mean, when it comes to my own like personal crises, I don't fight or flight. I play like, I, I, I might as well be dead. My you body freeze. does. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but for in other situations like that, yeah. I'm like, okay, here's a plan. <laughs> You can find more resources about PTSD and some of the other stuff we talked about in this episode in the show notes and on the insicknesspod.com blog. Thank you for listening and stay tuned to everything we have to come. In a few weeks, I'll be putting up part two of this episode where we'll be talking about chronic illness and sex and some of Kirsten's advocacy work. Be excellent to yourselves and each other, okay? Stop fucking killing people.